psychologist Solomon Ash conducted in 1951 an experiment to investigate the extent to which social pressure from a majority group could affect a person to conform. He believed that the main problem with Sheriff's Conformity Experiment 20 years before was that there was no correct answer to the ambiguous autokinetic experiment. To summarize, Sheriff used a lab experiment to study conformity. He used the autokinetic effect. What is that? Well, uh, this is where a small spot of light projected on the screen in a dark room will appear to move, even though it is still. It's, it's just a visual illusion, right? Well, so the result showed that when in an ambiguous situation, such as the autokinetic effect, a person will look to others for guidance. This ambiguity made Solomon Ash to wonder, how could Sheriff be sure that a person conformed when there was no correct answer? And it was then when he devised what is now regarded as a classic experiment in social psychology. The experiment you'll be taking part in today involves the perception of lengths of lines. As you can see here, I have a number of cards. In his experiment, each person in the room had to state aloud which comparison line A, B or C was most like the target line. The answer this time was always obvious. The real participant sat at the end of the row and gave his or her answer last. There were 18 trials in total, and the Confederates gave the wrong answer on 12 two. trials. Two. 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 Ash was interested to see if the real participant would conform to the majority view. Ash was smart enough and in this experiment also had a control condition where there were no Confederates, only real participants. Ash, 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 Ash measured the number of times each participant conformed with the majority view, and in the control group, where there was no pressure from other students who were part of the experiment, less than 1% of participants gave the wrong answer. But what made this experiment so famous is that, on average, about one-third of the participants who were placed in the experimental situation went along and conformed with a clearly incorrect majority. Conformity is a change in behavior due to explicit or implicit social pressure. When participants were interviewed after the experiment, most of them said that they did not believe their conforming answers, but they went along with the group out of fear of being ridiculed. Only a few of them stated that they really thought that the group's answer was correct. And here comes the big question. Why do people conform? The Ash experiment concluded that people conform for two main reasons. Because they believe that the group is more informed than they are, or because they want to fit in with the group. These reasons are called informational and normative influence. Informational influence. It happens when a person lacks the knowledge and looks to the group for information and direction. Yeah, sometimes we follow the group because what they say convinces us that this is the correct thing. In this influence intervenes the social referencing, which is a process of validating our reactions by checking on how others are behaving. The more difficulties in the answer equals to the more reliability in the other's response and equals to the more social conformity. People seek the opinion of others when they encounter a situation that they do not fully understand, and if they cannot get the answer firsthand, they will ask others, and if they can't, then they'll try to compare self-reactions to those of others. Also, decisions of other people can shape the information we receive. 
We could talk about the bandwagon fallacy. This fallacy is also sometimes called the appeal to common belief or appeal to the masses, because it's all about getting people to do or think something because everyone else is doing it or everything else thinks this. You can see a clear example in advertising, for example, in, in toothpaste ads that say nine out of 10 users recommend it. That's not a real argument, that's a fallacy because just because nine of, out of 10 users recommend it doesn't make the toothpaste good. On the other hand, sometimes we conform because we are afraid that the group will disapprove us if we are deviant. This is called the normative influence. It's a reason for conformity based on people's desire to be like, it happens to all of us, people feel so distressed when they are ignored or excluded from a group. That's so primitive and hard as physical pain. Yeah, it's actually harmful, and the strength of the normative factor is shown on a variation of fascist experiments. In this case, participants entered the room while the experiment was already in progress, and they had to note the answers privately, so the group wouldn't see the answers. What happened in this case? Well, the conformity dropped by two-thirds. It kind of demonstrated that there are two main reasons why we conform, but do we conform always in the same way? Absolutely not. There are three types of conformity. Compliance, conversion, and congruence. Compliance. It's also called public conformity or acquiescence, and it appears when you express publicly the same as the group, but privately you disagree. It's a superficial change. Conversion. Also called private conformity or true acceptance, it appears when you change your position and accept the group's idea as your own. It causes a real change in our minds. Congruence. It appears when you have the same opinion as the majority from the beginning, so you don't have to change anything. And we conform even more if the majority is anonymous. Those individuals who face the majority alone, without a single ally, bear all the social pressure. However, having a partner helps a little bit. Then you become a minority, and we shouldn't look down on them because a consistent minority can create genuine changes in what people think and feel. You can take as an example Martin Luther King. The life of the Negro is still sadly crippled. We will talk later about minorities. Now I'm here all the time mentioning conformity and how ridiculous humans are, but we don't always conform. We also disconform, and there are three different ways. Independence, anti-conformity, and strategic anti-conformity. Independence, also called dissent, and it appears when members disagree publicly, expressing consistent standards. Anti-conformity, also known as counter-conformity. It appears when someone expresses ideas that are opposite of whatever the group favors. Strategic anti-conformity. We can call it to devil's advocate, and it happens when you take publicly a position that opposes endorsed majority. Even then, uh, you agree with them privately. It's normal that non-conformity sounds somewhat heroic, and in some occasions it is. But according to fMRI studies, the cause of non-conformity may accentuate anxiety. Just in case, because maybe you've seen this word in the literature. FMRI is Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. It measures brain activity by detecting changes associated with blood flow. And according to this kind of studies too, 
One reason why people conform may be to avoid censure, ridicule and social disapproval. Traditionally, social influence has been accounted for in terms of individual needs such as the need for approval and liking or the need for rational assessment of the social world. These two types of needs have been translated into informational and normative influence. But don't you think there is something missing? Hint, there is. This dual process of dependency doesn't take into account the individual's belongingness. We love to feel that we belong to a group. And that creates conformity, too. The traditional dual process is focused on interpersonal dependency, and this can be a problem, we'll see why. This idea, the fact that is not correct, comes from social identity theory, proposed by Henry Tafel and John Turner in the 1970s. Step by step, social identity refers to the ways that people's self-concepts are based on their memberships in social groups. Examples include sports team, religions, nationalities, occupations, sexual orientations. Then the social identity theory addresses the ways that social identities affect people's attitudes and behaviors regarding the in-group and the out-group. Social identities are most influential when individuals consider membership in a particular group to be central to their self-concepts and they feel strong emotional ties to the group. Parenthesis, an out-group is any group that you don't belong to, while an in-group is a group that you associate yourself with. I said that the dual process of dependency is focused on interpersonal dependency, and that's why the social identity theory proposes a third process of social influence, a new reason why do people conform. And this is called the referent informational influence. Basically, it's the pressure someone receives uh, to conform to a group norm that defines oneself as a group member. In other words, it's the influence that occurs as people adjust their thoughts and behaviors to match the attributes of their social group. And maybe you're thinking, hey, what's the difference with the other two processes? Maybe you are not wondering, but I'm going to explain it anyway. In the referent informational influence, people conform not to other group members, what happens in the informational and normative influence, but to the group norm. And they use others as a source of information on what the norm is. People want to belong instead of the actual answer. And the answer is the main goal in the informational influence. Now we get to this point thinking that there are three reasons to conform, the informational, the normative, and the reference. Well, so something happened. Someone came and said, no. Do you know who was this man? He said that, no, nah, no way, there wasn't three reasons to conform. Why? Because in the experiment had been conformity bias. Conformity bias is the tendency people have to behave like those around them rather than using their own personal judgment. Nearly all research focused on how individuals or minorities yield to majority influence and conform to the majority, and assumed that social influence happens because humans look for uniformity and stability. It was also said that social influence is conformity, and thus conformity is important for the society. But if there is a conformed society, there's no space for innovation and change, something that minorities will have to fight for. Moscovici said that, in fact, Asha's studies were, in reality, studies of minority influence, not majority influence. Why did he say that? Well, he said that because ambiguity and uncertainty are not 
properties of everyday objects. It is actually that others disagree with us. So in reality, the participant who was alone in Nash's experiment was a member of a large majority. The people outside the lab. I mean, everybody would get the line's answer right. So the participant was confronted by a small minority, the confederates. In this way, Ash's participants were influenced by a minority, not a majority. Isn't it mind-blowing? Moscovici believed that disagreement and conflict happen in groups, of course, and there are three social influence modalities that define how people respond to such social conflicts. Conformity, normalization, and innovation. Conformity happens when a majority persuades the minority. Normalization appears when there is mutual compromise leading to convergence among all the citizens or all the members in the group. A third, innovation, it happens when a minority creates conflict in order to persuade the majority viewpoint. The Romanian psychologist proposed a genetic model of social influence. It's genetic because it can generate social change, and he studied how consistent minorities create cognitive conflict and produce social innovation. He argued that majorities and minorities exert influence through different processes. Process 1. Majority influence produces direct public compliance. Compliance for reasons of normative or informational dependence. And basically, uh, this is that people engage in a comparison process where they focus on what others say to know how to fit with them. So finally, the majority views are accepted passively but only passively, so the outcome is public compliance. Process 2. Minority influence produces indirect private change in opinion. This is due to the cognitive conflict and restructuring that deviant ideas produce. In this case, people engage in a validation process where they carefully examine the validity of their beliefs. The outcome isn't usually over public, because minorities produce a conversion effect. It's an internal change. Moscovici worked a lot in these genetic minority theories, and in case you want to start a revolution from zero, he said that the most effective behavioral style that a minority can adopt is to be consistent with the message. This is the most important. And it's because it disrupts the majority norm and draws attention to the minority. It also shows that there is an alternative coherent point of view and demonstrates certainty commitment. The second thing is to show investment in its position. How? By making significant sacrifices. If you see that you are really suffering, let's say, for your cause, they will take it more seriously. The last advice is to evince autonomy, and you do that by acting out of principles rather than instrumental motives. If the others see that your fight is intrinsic, they will follow you. I said that Moscovici made a lot of emphasis in consistency, and he also demonstrated its power in an experiment. The blue-green studies. We could say that they are a rerun of Ash's experiment, but in reverse. Instead of one subject amongst a majority of confederates, he placed two confederates together with four genuine participants. By the way, the participants were first giving eye tests to ensure that they were not colorblind because as you may imagine, this is all about color. The procedure of the experiment was the following. Uh, they were 
then placed in a group consisting of four participants and two confederates. They were shown 36 slides, which were clearly different shades of blue, and asked them to state the color of each slide out loud. Well, in the first part of the experiment, the two confederates answered green for each of the 36 slides. They were totally consistent in their responses. In the second part of the experiment, they answered green 24 times and blue 12 times. In this case, they were inconsistent in their answer. So what do you think? Would the responses of the two confederates influence those of the four participants? In other words, would there be a minority influence? So here are the results. In condition one, it was found that the consistent minority had an effect on the majority. Not very big, it was 8.42% compared to an inconsistent minority, only 1.25% said green. And well, kind of relevant data is that a third of all participants, like 32%, judged this light to be green at least once. What was the conclusion then? Well, minorities can influence a majority, but not all the time and only when they behave in certain ways. Obviously, it's easier for majorities to influence. And obviously, these studies had some criticism too, because we aren't sure if this applies to real life. It was an experiment made in a lab, but it kind of illustrates the power of the weak. Moscovici said so many more things, and he came to the world also to establish what is known as the conversion theory. Contrasting the majority rules model of a social influence, this theory maintains that disagreement within the group results in conflict, and that group members are motivated to reduce that conflict, either by changing their own opinions or attempting to get others to change. This is the definition, we would say, and this conversion theory can be organized in three hypotheses. In three hypotheses that basically are comparisons between majority influence and minority influence. 1. Direction of attention. This means that majority influence causes people to focus on their relationship uh, to the majority, versus the minority influence that instead focus on the message. 2. Content of thinking. This hypothesis refers that majority influence leads to a superficial examination of arguments, versus minority influence that this one leads to detailed evaluation of arguments. 3. Differential influence. This is going to be very familiar because we've talked about this before. Um, in this case, the majority produces more public influence, more acceptance publicly, versus the minority that produces more private influence. At this moment, you are probably fed up of so many theories, but I'm afraid there are some more. Because, for example, when Moscovici proposed his conversion theory, then the psychologist Nemeth came and proposed the convergent-divergent theory. It's very interesting too, and I'm trying to explain it properly and to establish some difference with Moscovici's theory. In this case, the author said that, uh, well, because people expect to share attitudes with the majority, when they discover through majority influence that their attitudes are in fact in disagreement with those of the majority, is surprising and stressful for them. What happens, so this feeling leads to a self-protective narrowing of focus of attention. Thus, this produces convergent thinking that inhibits 
consideration of alternative views. In contrast, because people do not expect to share their attitudes with a minority, the discovery of agreement associated with minority influence is unsurprising and is not stressful and does not narrow focus of attention. It allows divergent thinking that involves consideration of a range of alternative views, even ones not proposed by the minority. In this way, as a summary, Nemeth believes that exposure to minority views can stimulate innovation and creativity and generate more and better ideas and lead to superior decision-making in groups. Okay, good, so Nemeth was in favor of minorities, Moscovici was in favor of minorities. What's the difference between them? I'm very glad that you asked. Uh, the key difference between the two hinges on the relationship between stress and message processing. For Nemeth, majority-induced stress restricts message processing. But instead, for Moscovici, is the minority-induced stress that elaborates message processing. Well, we can say in other words, majority and minority influence leads to different styles of cognitive processing. Majority groups perform better than minority groups on tasks that benefit from convergent thinking, and minority groups exceed a task where creativity and multiple problem-solving strategies are needed. In this environment full of theories, there was a psychologist, you may know, his Latane, who was kind of jealous and he wanted to propose his theory too. And he did. And that was called the social impact theory. He made an analysis of social influence and conformity pressures in groups. And he said that the magnitude of social influence depends on three things. The number of sources. That means the number of people in the group exerting the social influence. Their strength. That means the, the power or the social status. And the immediacy. This refers to the physical or psychological distance between you and the group. Apparently, Latane wasn't happy enough with this theory, so he made an extension, and it was called the Dynamic Social Impact Theory. This one describes the influence of members between majority and minority groups. And the important thing that the theory suggests is that groups are constantly organizing and reorganizing into four basic patterns. Consolidation, clustering, correlation, and continuing diversity. Consolidation. As individuals interact with each other regularly, their actions, attitudes, and opinions become more uniform. The opinions held by the majority tend to spread throughout the group, while the minority decreases in size. For example, uh, two individuals who live in the same college dormitory will, over time, develop similar attitudes on a variety of topics. Clustering. It occurs when group members communicate more frequently as a consequence of close proximity. You know that individuals are susceptible to influence by their closest members, and so clusters of group members with similar opinions emerge in groups. Well, so minority group members are often shielded from majority influence due to clustering. Therefore, subgroups can emerge, which may possess similar ideas to one another, but hold different beliefs than the majority population. As an example, neighbors on a suburban street convince other neighbors to form a community watch group. Correlation. Over time, individual group members' opinions on a variety of issues converge so that their opinions become correlated. 
Example, uh, individuals in an executive society that find that they agree on topics they have discussed uh, in a conference, such as the best financial plan. But also they find uh, they also agree on topics they have never discussed, such as the best restaurant to eat in the city. And continuing diversity. As I mentioned before, minority members are often shielded from majority influence due to clustering. Diversity exists if the minority group can resist majority influence and communicate with majority members. However, if the majority's large or minority members are physically isolated from one, one another, this diversity decreases. I've been talking too much, I've explained many theories for a while now, and you probably have noticed that the group is very important in influencing, it has a huge role. But hey, what about the individual? What about the self in terms of influencing? This is why we need to talk about the self-categorization theory. I will not explain it so fast because the concept is a little bit tough, but well, well, we'll try at least. This theory seeks to understand and explain the processes by which people form cognitive representations of themselves and others in relation to different social groups. The main premise behind this theory is that people place themselves and others into social categories on the basis of the underlying attributes that are particularly salient. And this process of social categorization shapes a range of attitudes, emotions and behaviors. And now that we are talking about the self, we need to mention the famous and amazing idiosyncrasy credits. When you're in a group and you conform to the group norms all the time, you earn some credits that are nice because they are useful. These credits allow you to occasionally deviate from the same group norms without fear of reprisal, which is the best. In other words, we can say that these idiosyncrasy credits is the individual's capacity to deviate from group expectations, but without reprisal. As I mentioned, you can earn these credits by conforming to the group norms or by demonstrating competence in the direction they wish to take the group. If I'm not wrong, and I know I'm not wrong, we have more than enough reasons to understand why do people conform. But beyond these many theories and reasons, there are other factors, like situational factors or personality characteristics, and that's how we're gonna finish the episode today about the factors that would lead people to conform or not conform. The very, the very first thing is that people who conform in one situation doesn't have to conform in another, that's for sure. And in this case, situational factors may be more important than personality. In, in conformity terms. Even though those who conform tend to have low self-esteem, low IQ, high anxiety, feeling of self-blame and insecurity, characteristics that would not surprise us. But look, I'm gonna try to make this as clear as possible. So I'm gonna do literally a list with situational and personality factors, as if I was in the market shouting what vegetables do I sell today. Later, I will explain more in details some of them. Situational factors. Accountability. People conform more if they are striving for acceptance by others whose preferences are known, and they will conform less if these individuals are accountable for their actions and are striving for accuracy. Ambiguity. 
people will conform more if the issues are simple and unambiguous and will conform less if the issues are complex. Anonymity. People conform more if respondents' identities are known to others and will conform less if their respondents are anonymous. Attraction. Conformity here is more likely if members are attracted to the group or its members, and conformity is less likely if members dislike each other. Awareness. Here individuals will conform more if they are aware they disagree with the majority and will conform less if they do not realize that their position is unusual. Commitment to membership. If individuals are committed to remaining in the group, they will be more likely to conform and they will be less likely to conform if the groups or membership are temporary. Public commitment to position. Individuals will be less likely to conform if they didn't initially conform, but their responses are private. However, the conformity is less likely if individuals did not initially conform and their responses are public. Situational motivators. Here, conformity is more likely to happen if non-conformists could be revealed as incorrect and will conform less if individuals are motivated to stand out from the crowd. Size. Of course, they will conform more if the majority is large. Task. If the task is important but very difficult, there are more chances to conform. Unanimity. If the majority is anonymous, it is much more likely to conform. Nevertheless, if several members disagree with the majority, they are likely to conform less. These are the situational factors. Now let's go with the personality factors. Age. Conformity increases until adolescence and then decreases into adulthood. Authenticity. Individuals who are higher in dispositional authenticity tend to resist external influences. Authoritarianism. Authoritarians respect and obey authorities and social conventions. Birth order. Firstborn children tend to conform more than children born later, who tend to be more rebellious and creative. Dependency. People who are high in dependency display heightened compliance, conformity, and suggestibility. Gender identity. Masculine individuals and androgynous individuals conform less on gender-neutral tasks than feminine individuals. Individualism collectivism. People from collectivistic cultures, for example Asians, value conformity as a means of achieving harmony with others, whereas those from individualistic cultures, such as European Americans, value uniqueness. Individuation. People with a high desire to publicly differentiate themselves from others are more willing to express dissenting opinions and contribute more to group discussions. Intelligence. Less intelligent people and individuals who are uncertain of their abilities conform more. Personality traits. Introverts experience more discomforts when disagreeing with a group and so conform more. Agreeableness, conscientiousness and stability are associated to with greater conformity, but openness with less conformity. Self-esteem. Individuals with low self-esteem conform more than individuals with moderate and high self-esteem. However, adolescents with high self-esteem conform more than those with low self-esteem. Self-monitoring. High self-monitors, because of their self-presentational tendencies, conform more when striving to make a positive impression. And finally, yay saying. 
Yes, Ayers, particularly when working under a cognitive load, say yes faster and more frequently than individuals who thoughtfully consider their position. And this would be more or less all if you thought there weren't situational factors or factors in general. There you go. Before I said that we were gonna comment some of them, because people conform when the social pressure is intense and they are insecure about how to behave. And I had a question, what does create this feeling of insecurity? And there are three things that we already commented. The first one is the group size. And we said that the bigger the group, the more conformity. That's not really true, because conformity reaches its full length with a three to five person majority. And additional members have little effect. In their literature, there was this example about the light bulbs in a dark garage in which if you plug in one light bulb the difference will be amazing but if you have um, 15 light bulbs switched on in the dark garage it won't be dark anymore and if you switch on the 16th bulb the difference won't be so big. I think it's a kind of great example. In second place the focus on norms because social norms give rise to conformity when we know and focus on them but sometimes we misperceive what is normative and what is not. And third and last, an alley in dissent. In Nash's experiment, the presence of a single confederate who agreed with the participant reduced conformity by almost 80%. That shows that the group anonymity is very important because once this is broken, the participant feels that they can speak up without fear of embarrassment. Can you feel now the knowledge in your brain? Because this is all I had to offer about factors that can lead us to conform or not to conform. But now we're gonna discuss the five last theories in the chapter. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I think we've covered pretty much everything. The most important topics should be in the summary. So now the only thing left I have to tell you is thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day and if you want, See you in the next episode.